invite a guest yes. <laughs> or a ghost. Um, good morning, I'm Jackie McGlone, a journalist, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. And it's a great pleasure for me this morning to introduce Kate Summerscale uh, at this Meet the Author event. Kate is an award-winning biographer. Um, she wrote a book called The Queen of Whale Cay about a totally bonkers British woman who uh, ruled an island in the West Indies. And that book won a Somerset Maugham Award and was shortlisted for the Whitbread Biography Award. But she's probably best known as the author of The Suspicions of Mr. Whitcher or The Murder at Road Hill House. This riveting bestseller won the BBC for Samuel Johnson Prize for nonfiction, was selected for the Richard and Judy Book Club earlier this year, and was shortlisted for the Crime Writers Association Gold Dagger. The Suspicions of Mr. Whitcher, it's very difficult to say, <laughs> is the original Victorian whodunit, a page-turning true story which has all the elements of classic crime fiction. A body, a detective, a country house steeped in secrets and lies, and a whole family of suspects, not to mention the servants. Sarah Waters summed up the suspicions of Mr. Whitcher thus, a pacey analysis of a true British murder case from 1860, the unravelling of which involved one of the earliest Scotland Yard detectives, and inspired sensational novelists such as Dickens and Wilkie Collins by exposing the dark secrets of the Victorian middle-class home. Absolutely riveting. While John le Carre said, it is a beautiful piece written with great lucidity and respect for the reader and with immaculate restraint. A classic, to my mind, of the finest documentary writing. Ladies and gentlemen, Kate Summerscale. Kate, I want to begin by asking you to tell us a story. Uh, in that, I would like you to tell, for those who may have not read the book, the, the background to the, to the story of Road Hill House. Uh, yes, I, it was um, a, a particularly horrific crime, the murder at Road Hill House. A, three-year-old boy was taken from his nursery in a, in a large country house in the village of Road on the border of Somerset and Wiltshire. And um, he was found in the morning after a search had been raised and uh, the grounds and the, and the building had been, uh, had been searched um, with his throat cut and uh, he was stabbed through the heart uh, and thrust down an outdoors lavatory in the grounds of the house. And it was very quickly apparent that the murderer must have been somebody who'd been asleep in the building, who'd been in the building that night uh, because the uh, doors and windows had all been secured, locked and bolted. And the local police therefore had a sort of limited number of suspects to deal with, but they failed to solve the crime within the first fortnight and it became a sort of national sensation. It was reported in the newspapers and there was a, a clamour for a, a detective to be sent down from Scotland Yard to investigate. And the, eventually, one was, after two weeks, Mr. Witcher, Detective Inspector Jack Witcher, um, went down on the train from London. And the book 
that is really the, the starting point of the book is the discovery of the body and the detectives uh, sort of setting out to try to solve the case and I try to reconstruct what happened when he was there. So could you tell us how you stumbled upon the story? W when did you first hear about it or read about it? Um, I read about it in an old book in the London Library that was on the um, shelves marked Crime and which to have a, a lot of Victorian books because um, reading about crime was extremely popular in the late Victorian period but this was one of the the earliest of the sort of d dramatic domestic crimes that um, that became a sort of celebrated national mystery and uh, and I was amazed that I'd never heard of it because it seemed such a rich and novelistic story and um, bore so many uh, relations to novels I'd read and crime dramas I'd watched and that's what started me uh, started me off I was sort of intrigued by how uh, by these connections how familiar the story seemed even though I'd never heard of it mm -hmm. and so when you read it did you did you immediately think well this is going to make a great book because I know that I mentioned the Queen of Whale Cay and you, you found that because you were writing obituaries weren't mm. you for the, the Telegraph where you worked um, but and, and that was such a great story you obviously wanted to write a book but did you, did you think I want to write about this or did you start reading about it you know researching it well, first I said with the Queen of Wellkey my first book I thought oh this is a, an, an amazing story an amazing untold story that for various reasons had never been written down as a story this was different because it had been told before the, the story of the murder and so I, I, I sort of instantly wanted to know more about it and to write about it and, mm. and to think about it. But I, I wasn't instantly sure that there was anything fresh I could do with the story. And so I, I carried on sort of researching it and reading around it. And then everything fell into place for me when I um, found out more about Jack Witcher, the detective. And realized that this was he was a character in the story very unusually for for a true crime narrative and had a very poignant sort of trajectory in that he was the greatest detective of his day and that's why he was sent to road to solve the case and he very quickly decided who had done it and set about gathering his his evidence trying to prove it but he was unable to substantiate his case in the time available and um, and as a result he went back to London in disgrace his career was ruined he had a nervous breakdown and left the force and I was intrigued by by his story and the um, the irony and sort of poignancy of it especially because after he retired from the force his suspect confessed and so he was vindicated and so it, both as a sort of human story, his story, but also because he was um, the, an early figure who helped inspire detectives such as Inspector Bucket and um, Sergeant Cuff for Wilkie Collins, mm. I, I saw that added a whole dimension that hadn't really been explored to mm. this case as a kind of founding story of detective fiction. Mm. The, the time span of the book is, is very tight, isn't it? Apart from when you get to the end, because it's about a month. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and because of that, the story has uh, an incredible gripping momentum. Uh, I, how did you find your way to, 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 the, to find the tone of the piece and, to, and decide how to use all of that research? Because it, everything in the book is documented, isn't it? It's from evidence, newspaper reports, even the weather yes. you have information about. Yes, which is, I mean, not hard to find once you think mm. to look for it, you know, mm. the new, local newspapers would, um, would report on the weather and the crops and, mm. um, and I, um, it was, I did research for a, a very long time, at least a year of just solid researching before I uh, decide, started writing and even after I started writing I, I radically sort of changed my, the structure of the book as I went along. So I did, it was, it was like um, setting up a great big puzzle for myself of how to use, how to weave together all the things. Because you're a detective, aren't you? You're, you've become a detective. I guess anyone yeah. researching mm. history becomes mm. a detective of sorts. And I was interested in those parallels too, about how detectives work and how that is or isn't the same as, as how a, a researcher works, um, a sort of historical researcher. Uh, so it was like making the, the task as difficult as possible because <laughs> I pursued every um, avenue I was interested in uh, from, you know, theories about female insanity to the, um, the woolen mills in Trowbridge and Wiltshire and, um, and early detective fiction. And I had to um, and then find a structure that would... That could, that could contain them all and, and that I could and of course I had to lose quite a lot when it came to it there were things I simply couldn't include but I did find something that, that satisfied me in terms of addressing all the things that I'd found mm. interesting mm. along the way mm. and the, the thing that really um, enabled me to do it was just to have a very uh, as you say sort of chronologically uh, Type structure, so it was day by day the investigation, and then I allowed myself within that structure to go off at various tangents to sort of explore and fill in the the context of the setting, both for how people were feeling and thinking, and also the more practical details of what everything looked like and smelt like, and as the investigation unfolded. Mm -hmm. And could we talk about detection at that point? in the 1860s because as you mentioned Jack Witcher was one of the first he was the great detective wasn't he yeah. but uh, it was a new investigative technique wasn't it yes and I'd um, before I started work on this book I never thought about when detectives began when the first detectives were but they, they were um, established in 1842, and Witcher was, Jack Witcher was the most junior of the eight original detectives in 1842, and by 1860, when the murder took place, he was really the sort of senior officer in, in the squad, which was still tiny, eight or ten men. And um, so it was a very much a, in its infancy, and each of, and there were no precedents, there were no guidebooks or instructions about how to detect and so really the the inventors of detection were the first detectives and I, I was fascinated by that um, and the idea that that they were making up the methods that, that we have eventually inherited they begin beginning the story as they went along in response to the crimes that they 
encountered. Mm. Um, and Jack Witcher, so I did quite, I did a lot of reading about what other crimes Witcher had investigated before he went to road um, as a way of piecing together how detectives worked then and, um, and how his mind worked and what his sort of characteristics were, what were the things that were peculiar to him as opposed to his colleagues. Mm. And he's as complex, isn't he, as any modern detective in fiction or, you know, in film or television. He's as complex, say, as uh, Philip Marlowe or yes, he, and <laughs> Moss. He, yes. And I did see lots of the characteristics of the sort of detective heroes of now, particularly mm. the sort of police detectives, the, mm. uh, the working class uh, loners, or gritty detectives mm. in him. He, was very, he looked very ordinary. He had a little dry sense of humour, um, a certain kind of detachment and quietness about him so that uh, people didn't sort of realise that he was sort of thinking deeply and working things out. Mm. Um, and was also, to, to my mind, a sort of you know, humorous and likeable man, quite warm and quite um, sort of wry in his relations with, say, the criminals that he caught. Mm. And there was a, um, it brought, brought it home to me that he was from exactly the class that the that the criminals too were from you know that they there was only there was a thin dividing line and that's why the detectives knew what they were about because they were able to enter the slums and um, and the rookeries of london and kind of fit in and um, seem you know blend into the landscape mm. so that was uh, that was that was sort of intriguing and it helped explain some of the um, vitriol and hatred directed at him in the, with the Road Hill investigation where he was for once unusually a detective was investigating a, an upper middle class household mm -hmm. and um, interviewing the members of the family going through their drawers mm -hmm. um, so so that the class thing I, I came to think of as very central to the story. That caused a great tension, didn't it? Because uh, there was also a huge public debate about the nature of privacy, which is one of the, the contemporary resonances that the suspicions of Mr. Witcher has for us, because we, we, we are concerned about surveillance and privacy mm. and so on today. And that became a huge thing, didn't it? Yes, there was the de detectives were quite kind of glorified mm. by people like Charles Dickens and um, they were very exciting figures mm. but they were also from the start quite suspect themselves mm. and mm. Um, the English had a real horror of the idea of spies uh, um, people who you couldn't so the early police had to wear their uniform at all times mm. so that there would never be any ambiguity about whether they were sp uh, state spies out of <laughs> out of uniform um, and so that was a really a radical thing about the detectives was that they were in plain clothes and so they couldn't be instantly identified as agents of the state mm. and I was um, I started to sort of think about the, some of the words, some of the language associated with detection. And the word detect itself means to take the roof off. Um, and it was also a, an era of great domestic uh, privacy. And, uh, the, the home was, was sacred in a way, it was the centre of empire, was what empire was all about. And, um, and, I, and I think it's not a 
coincidence that the prying into the home and the closing up of the home, so mm. the, the invention of the detective force and the, um, the, the great premium placed on the privacy of the family um, happened at the same time. Mm. Mm. Um, so that there was a, it was an age where sort of secrecy in some ways and equally in a, you know, a, a real hunger to find out other people's secrets. Mm. Well, as I said, this house was steeped in secrets, wasn't it? Mm. I mean, yes, it was um, the, the, the family story was, was very dark and, and gothic. Um, Samuel Kent, the, the father of the, the master of the household, was a fairly sort of bad-tempered man, not very popular in the village, uh, quite high-handed with servants, and he was a government inspector of factories. And he had, his first wife had died after a period, uh, he, he said, of insanity, um, leaving him, she'd borne him about 10 children, of whom by the time of the murder, four survived. And then as his second wife, he took the, uh, a woman who was already living in the house, the governess mm. to his, uh, the children of the first family, um, with whom the, the rumours were that he had been having an affair for a, for a long time and that he had already installed her as mistress of the house before his first wife died. So that he then had several children with her of whom the murdered boy was the eldest son, or the only son at that point. Um, and there was a lot of resentment and envy between the two families. There was a lot of uh, uh, resentment also between the servants and the uh, employers in, in, in the house. So there was, there was lots of sort of bad feeling, secrecy. And because of the rumours that had attached themselves to, to the family over many years, um, they'd frequently moved and had few friends in the village and kept themselves very private. Mm. Um, so it was, it was really sort of opening an extraordinary scene of <laughs> Victorian families of dysfunction and co um, co complexity. Mm -hmm. um, and it, when the, the murder, as, as often in detective novels, and I, I guess as often in life, the murder opened up a whole sort of, a whole story, a whole family history. Mm -hmm. uh, how difficult was it for you to be in a sense, writing about the genre of detective fiction and writing in the form of detective fiction, how did you balance that? Um, well, it was quite... It, it, sometimes that was, it was tricky to, to kind of gauge what, what I could do, but mostly it was quite fun, quite sort of liberating to, be, to try to write an, a non-fiction work in, and, to, and to feel sort of justified in writing it as with the kind of suspense and, and momentum or some of the suspense and momentum of fiction because of the close connections that the story had with fiction. Mm -hmm. The way, um, you know, I, I became convinced that it was in effect the template for the country house murder mystery and the origin because of the idea of all the suspects being on the scene and there being a discrete number of people who might be in, involved in the crime um, it, it was exactly like the Agatha Christie stories that take place in hotels and cruise ships and <laughs> railway trains. And, uh, and, I, and there were additional things I started to notice about that, like the real trick of those stories is that there are lots of secrets 
lots of people have secrets. That's the, um, and that's why there are red herrings, because there's lots of emotional complexity and psychological darkness going on in every corner you look. Mm. And the detective's job is to sort of uh, unravel which are relevant to the murder. Mm. Um, and so uh, things like that, it sort of, it helped me kind of find a, a, a new way of writing about the subject that was, you know, story-like itself. So mm. mo mostly it was a help rather than a hindrance, the fact that I was trying to address the subject to the beginning of detective fiction as well as tell a detective mm. story. And, and it, you, the way you, you withhold information is very beautifully done. Um, I mean, obviously that has to, to be worked hard at when you're writing, does it? Because you can't give too much away, but you've got to give us those clues. No, as we're doing now, yeah. not giving too much away. <laughs> yeah, we can In case people haven't read yeah. Well, um, I, I, when, we, when we take questions, if you've read it, do not talk about the end. <laughs> um, but uh, yes, it, it is... Um, well, w when you write a book, you've got a lot of time to kind of work, work that out and mm. sort of remove something from one place and put it in another. And a lot of the... the, um, f the you know, there was a lot of technical fiddling about with this book, mm -hmm. so to, to move things so that people knew enough but not too much. And you don't want to, you're sort of aware that you do have to, you, you can't um, go to, you can't deliberately mislead the reader either because mm -hmm. I think that, that is annoying. So I had to, I did think about all those things about what, when I read books of suspense, sort of psychological thrillers or detective books, what, what you will. It's, uh, allow in terms of the um, author not telling you things that would completely clear up the mystery straight mm. away. Mm. And the, the very simple um, guideline I, I used was to only give the reader what Witcher knew, what the detective knew at any point. Mm -hmm. And that way it was sort of... The, um, it was, looking at things through his eyes as far as possible and it wasn't it stopped it wasn't a deceptive process then because uh, I was just following him keeping close to him so the fact that I might know what happened later was neither here nor there mm. you know or what was really going on so that that helped me um, very much in terms of uh, of doing something that seemed kind of honest but at the same time um, suspenseful mm. Mm. One of the things we, we mustn't forget about this book is that a child was horribly murdered. It's, it's a gruesome, grisly murder, isn't it? Mm. Um, and it, it, it's, it, it, I, I think sometimes when you're reading, it, it, as the reader you might forget. I mean, mm. you don't as the, as the author, but that was always yeah. at the back of your mind, Well, I did. I, I mean, I did forget as the author... Um, many times I think and that I did find that quite disturbing um, and especially I mean as I was writing the book I have a, a son who was you know more or less the same age and the the cold-bloodedness with which I could get so involved in the sort of puzzle of it and the technicality and the the adventure of the research mm. um, and sort of lose sight repeatedly of, of the absolutely horrible really sort of unbearable thing at the at the heart of the book which mm -hmm. is the uh, this sort of seemingly motiveless and very very brutal murder of a three-year-old um, 
I did find that that disturbing, but I think that, that I just said it's sort of almost unbearable. I think that's part of the thing. It's not something you you can keep in mind all the time. And I I became interested in in working out how the the business of reading and writing, but you know, reading detective fiction or watching um, dra crime dramas and, and films actually does in some weird way uh, remove us from mm -hmm. the reality of, of physical violence and, and emotional trauma and take us somewhere more comforting. Mm -hmm. And that, that the, um, the ways in which detective fiction began might bear some relation to exactly that process where you, you, you don't feel too much but instead turn something very disturbing into um, an intellectual puzzle. Mm -hmm. And you quote, of course, in the afterword, Raymond Chandler saying that um, a detec detective fiction is about a tragedy with a happy ending. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think in, in a way, I think that's the, that is that sort of process where you start with a horror and you end with a solution mm. um, is a way of dealing with, with terrible things. Uh, and in a way, my, my book kind of echoes that, but because it's real, um, because it's true, I think in the end it's not, it doesn't have a no. happy ending mm. because, you know. Mm. Well, it's life mm. <laughs> and death. Yeah. Um, did, while you were writing, it, it must have been around the time that Madeleine McCann went missing. I mean, that's another of the, uh, the, the contemporary resonances this book has for us mm. because there are so many similarities, aren't there? Mm. In, I, did, yes. I don't mean in the murder, but in actually in the case of a child who's gone missing and the consequences in the cover, thereafter. In the coverage, there were amazing yeah. and the public response to it. Mm. Um, in fact, I, while I was writing the book, it, it, I'd almost finished the book when Madeleine McCann went missing. Um, I was sort of revising it and doing footnotes and things like that. And the thing I'd more had in mind, the, the public response to, say, the James Bulger case and, you know, child murders that... The Soa murders. Before. Yes, the Soa murders, exactly. Um, but, I, but the Madeleine McCann thing was uh, astonishingly similar in terms of the, the um, mysterious, in Madeleine McCann's case, an abduction, the suspicion falling on the family and that family being a middle class family and the horrible um, emotional sort of, uh, you know, sort of dizzying idea that they um, might be involved in the crime and then the uh, sense that if they weren't, as they, as they weren't, as far as we know, then it w w the horror of both losing a child and being suspected of that, mm. which was very much what happened in the Kent household. The father fell under suspicion, brothers and sisters, the nursemaid, and um, so the, the worst possible thing had happened to them, and then a thing that is possibly even worse in some other way, the suspicion of their, them being implicated in the crime. And the way in which the public felt the right felt entitled to make these um, assumptions and come up with these hypotheses about what had really happened, uh, felt almost obliged to do so, and everyone talking about it. Mm. That was, um, you know, very similar, because the, 
uh, Savile Kent's murder was um, discussed throughout the country in pubs and dining rooms across all classes. Um, all the newspapers came up with their theories, many of them apparently without fear of the libel laws, much, much as mm -hmm. here, mm -hmm. as with Madeleine McCann. Um, so it was, it was strikingly similar and, um, and it, was, it made me realise we're living in the same culture, the same kind of um, press and national culture. And there were also the allegations of police incompetence as well in both cases, weren't there? Yes. Yeah. It, in, um, in the case, uh, the Road Hill House murder, the local police were depicted as really sort of bungling, inept, too deferential to the family, and then the uh, inspectors sent from Scotland Yard to sort it all out. And, and in fact, I think there were Scotland Yard detectives sent down to Portugal <laughs> to, um, you know, to, on, this, on the same basis, or they don't know what they're doing, sort of bumpkins who... Um, and so, so again, there was the, you know... And you mentioned, Kate, the, the great media feeding frenzy over Madeleine's um, abduction but there was all oh, this was the kind of this this case road hill house was the was if you like the start of of journalists doorstepping people because they were gathered outside the house weren't they and yeah were, the coverage was there saturation point yes there was reporters from all over mm. the country were sort of camped in the village sort of following the proceedings and um there was a lot of uh, of kind of ghoulish tourism associated with it as well so that you had people just coming for a look at the house and um, the so the family were under this sort of constant surveillance from the time of the the murder onwards and for as long as it went unsolved and the thing is it, di it did go unsolved for a very long time so the speculation didn't stop it was five years between the murder and the confession and um, and so the family more or less had to go into hiding in North Wales, <laughs> went to, and, um, and, and one member of the family was sent abroad. Um, the father had to leave his job and find a very obscure sort of outpost, which is where, um, where he wouldn't be harassed and insulted all the time. Mm. So it was um, both the press and the public were, were, were hounding them, really. Um, and, it, and then once that relented a little, it seemed to me that the story still kept appearing in disguised forms in the sensation fiction of the period. And ghost stories. Yes, yes. Um, later in ghost stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because uh, you, you mentioned, um, you know, Turn of the Screw, although it's not directly, it's mm. obviously an echo of the story, isn't it? Yeah. Feels, and yeah. Uh, that famous M.R. James story, mm. The Mezzo Tint. Yes, which I didn't come across um, till after the book was published, The Mezzo Tint. A friend directed me to it. Uh -huh. um, and, and I did, and I have, have heard stories both, both while I was researching the book and, and since, more since. Um, from people who lived in the houses where the, the Kents lived and um, reported strange noises and apparitions. A grey lady. Yes, a grey lady, <laughs> inevitably. And, uh, and it's, which seems to me, um, sort of whatever you think about kind of ghosts, it, it is... It, if nothing else, a kind of indication, a, a, a sort of metaphor for the way that the story do hasn't quite been laid to rest. Mm. 
that um, and that even when the uh, confession was made, there were still questions around what really happened and whether there, the, it was a complete account or not. And even though I didn't go into this um, book intending to kind of resolve the case and come up with a fresh solution, there's something, <laughs> there's something kind of inexorable about it. And I did end up thinking, no, I think I know what really happened. And, uh, and you know, to feel that there was, there, there was another element to be added to make the picture complete. Mm. Now, since the book has been published, it's now out in paperback, so there's a, an additional postscript in the paperback that's not in the, mm -hmm. the hardback. Um, would you talk a bit about the, the things that happened? Because one of them was the discovery of, of a photograph of Jack Witcher, who yeah. you'd written about not knowing what he looked like. Yes. I'd had, um, I'd had a bit to go on. I had his description of which are in the uh, police, the sort of administration records, his discharge papers and so on. So I knew he was, um, he had blue eyes and pockmarked skin and he wasn't very tall and he was a bit stocky. And I also, um, the invaluable was an, an account by Charles Dickens who'd met the detectives in 1850 and gave a, a pretty full description of Witcher and described how he, how he was sort of reserved and um, thoughtful as if he was engaged in arithmetical calculations but that, that was more or less it and as far as I knew um, and or as far as I could find there were no photographs of him which I wasn't so surprised about because uh, photography was still expensive and, yeah, and he wasn't rich and he was a detective he was meant to be a bit anonymous mm. so I was it was about three months after the book was published um, I got a letter from somebody who'd read the book saying, did I know that there was a photograph in, in an archive in Hampshire? And, and my heart was in my mouth as to what I'd find, whether it would be anything like what I'd imagined. Um, and there were, in fact, two photographs, a sort of close-up and a standing portrait. And they were pretty close. You know, I, he was a bit better looking in real life than in my imagination. I thought he'd... I thought he'd look a bit moodier and um, and more and, and sort of glowering, <laughs> and um, and in fact he looks quite friendly, but um, but physically and a more kind of jaunty than than I'd pictured, but physically quite close and um, doesn't look as shabby as I thought he might look. No. But I suppose he was dressed up for for the, the picture for the exactly, and with his best Sunday best on. Yes, yes, exactly. And he looked quite—he looks quite pleased with the way he looks in the photograph. I didn't know, I saw him skulking in the corners. Mm, yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, but yes, I'm sure he had his Sunday best on. He had the pictures taken in a studio, um, and the nice part of the story of the pictures was that they were taken at the time of the case of the Tichborne claimant, which he worked on ten years after the Road Hill case. Um, well, seven, eight years after, and he was a private investigator, and he more or less solved the case. He established the identity of this man who was claiming to be the baronet and heir to the Tichborne fortune, and he established that he was actually a butcher's son from Wapping. <laughs> and, um, so he, after the, uh, the real apparent sort of tragedy for him of his um, the collapse of his career his nervous breakdown his retirement from the force he actually had a, a, a second career he remarried 
um, well, not remarried, he married for the first time, as far as I know, and, um, and had this, you know, rather dashing bit of fame as the private investigator in the Titchbourne case. And so the, the photos were taken, not for him, but as um, postcard souvenirs for the, for the many people who were obsessed with that case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, then there is the wonderfully uh, spooky event of you being sent some postcards, stereoscopic oh, yes. postcards of Roadhill House. Yes. Well, please tell us about that. Um, that's a, another reader who'd um, heard the... The, about the book on the radio to begin with and he's a collector of stereoscopic pictures which are sort of two uh, matching photographs very slightly different which when viewed through a stereoscopic viewer seemed to be three-dimensional so it was an early sort of three and it was a huge craze in the 1860s so tens and th tens of thousands of these produced and he came across um, one card with two pictures of a house on it and on the back it said Roadhill House and so he got in touch with me he made copies and when he blew them up in at home on his computer he saw that in one of the photographs and not the other there were two faces at a window downstairs which of course was yeah, irresistibly <laughs> intriguing um, and there was, there was no clue really as to when the pictures were taken, but they were obviously old. And I'd never seen a picture, a photograph of Roadhill House before about 1930. So it was very exciting to see these Victorian photos. And it did have a photographer's name, so it, with a little bit of research, um, worked out that they were taken while the Kents were still in the house, but after the murder. So they were taken as to be sold as souvenirs of the of the crime which was mm. interesting you know that um that there there was that kind of you know industry of crime souvenirs going on um and i i speculate in the book about who the figures at the window might be but the um the whole sort of atmosphere of these figures appearing at the window is very reminiscent of the the mezzo tint the mr james yes. story and, uh, and, and just that um, disconcerting sense that your picture of the past can just change, you mm. know? If you look closely enough, something shifts and mm -hmm. something else comes to light, which, um, which is a, a, sort of, a, a sort of spooky feeling in itself and, and a, a, you know, an, an in, a, a good one for somebody who writes non-fiction. It's what keeps it so live. It's a sense that you don't know what you're going to come across. And if you do um, push hard enough, there will always be something new. Mm -hmm. And can you bear to leave the 19th century behind? <laughs> well, not, not quite. I am, I'm researching something from the same period at the moment, another sort of true story that I... Not a crime story, but a divorce case, which I came across while I was researching the last book and that didn't quite... Um, I kept kind of going back to and thinking about and wondering if I could make something of it. And mm -hmm. so I've, um, I've been researching that and I'll see where it takes me. In fact, some of it is based here. Um, so in Edinburgh? In Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. So I've uh, just this morning been to the, the house of one of the characters in the book to see what it, to what it feels like. So How exciting. We yeah. can't <laughs> wait. <laughs> Um, I'd love for you now to 
wave at us and we'll bring a microphone to you and give us some questions, please. I have a gentleman here. Thank you for these lovely books. I suppose I've reached the age where I read the obituaries every morning. <laughs> if my name doesn't appear, I report to the university. <laughs> However, now that I've become a fan somewhat of obituaries, I'm wondering, as an obituarist, how you determine how a life becomes a story. Because more and more we see beautiful, beautifully written obituaries, and as you say, within every obituary, there are many dark secrets and many wonderful stories. But what are the elements of an obituary that lead you as a novelist to want to develop it into a story to share with others? I think um, it's, it's when often um, the obituary is an incredibly satisfying form to people who like kind of compressing things like me and writing very short because it... Um, because it's sort of short and not not waffly and but and there can be a lot of sort of comedy and poignancy about out of telling a life in in that kind of brief span um, but I guess the, the the thing really that makes you want to write at more length about something is not thinking just oh isn't it interesting I I'll write more but it's for there to be proper sort of mysteries about it you know bits that don't add up things you can't explain things that nag at you and so um, I think, you know, with, with any, that is, it is only that, because the test of whether you should write about something is about whether it bothers you somehow. <laughs> you keep thinking about it and keep wondering. And, um, and if so, then there'll be enough uh, for, to sort of sustain you, sustain you imaginatively to, to kind of find out more. I was just wondering if there's been uh, any reaction from the current inhabitants of the village. I know it's changed its name since, but if they've become, you know, had visitors looking to find a house and just spend time in the village, fans of the book and such like? Um, there, yes, I, I went to Roadhill House um, when I was researching the book, and the then owner was very you know, generous, showed me round, let me roam around with my camera, and um, it, was, it was fascinating how unchanged it was. Uh, the, the building, the privy in which the boy's body was found had been demolished and uh, a flower garden built over it. But otherwise, it's all very much as it was. And the house has since changed hands. And I think the, the current owners were a bit taken aback when the book, <laughs> when the book came out. And, um, and they had people coming and sort of peering, trying to peer over their walls and through the gates and so on. Um, but they, uh, I, I have been in touch with them and they've read the book and, and they say they now, you know, give it to house guests at <laughs> the end of the weekend. So I think they're... Um, they're happy with it, but it did, you know, it did have a notoriety at the time. It did change its name. Well, so the new owners changed the name sort of m within months of the murder. The village still has this, well, the village has changed the spelling of its name, but I, that's unconnected. It's just the house itself. Um, but I think at this distance of time, I, I hope it's something a sort of intriguing piece of social history rather than something really disturbing. Um, there was a gentleman here. Thank you. It's a closely re related question, actually. Um, I was wondering how much local knowledge of the case you found when you visited Road, Trowbridge and Froome, because I grew up in Trowbridge and I had no idea about it till I read your book. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Um, well, I think that m many people, especially older people, sort of knew about the, the crime. Um, but it's, it's, it's a long time ago. There'd be no sort of first-hand knowledge or, st well, obviously not first-hand, but even family knowledge, I think, is a bit too long ago for things to have been passed down. And I didn't come across anything while I was researching it of that kind. But afterwards, I have had some letters from people who know that they're descended from the, uh, you know, the housekeeper or the, the somebody who lived in the lane next to the house. And I've had letters from descendants of the GP, the doctor, who conducted the post-mortem on the boy's body and who was a friend of the family and who, who know, has family stories about their ancestor playing with the child who was murdered when he was uh, uh, very young. Um, and various, uh, so, and the, uh, so there have been lots of, lots of descendants have got in touch with me and I guess because the book has sold well, it's reached lots of people who probably wouldn't have read this kind of book and had no idea about their connection to this case. And so I've found out much more about the sort of traces in, you know, now since the book's been published. And, and Kate, what about the descendants of the Kent family? Yeah, I had, um, I, I had a, a letter, a great letter from some uh, woman who lives in East Sussex who said that she believed she was descended from Samuel Kent's illegitimate daughter by a woman who worked in the theatre in London and um, that Samuel Kent had reputedly sort of given money to this daughter and visited her frequently and um, so I went and I, I looked at the, the grave and talked to the, the descendant and I was quite persuaded by this, the dates fit exactly with the period in the 1830s when Samuel Kent was in London and there, is, there are other reasons to suppose he was fairly promiscuous <laughs> yes. and um, so that was a, a kind of strange surprise that there should be a descendant in England of a branch of the family I didn't even know existed mm -hmm. and, um, and then there's, there are also a couple of descendants in Australia or a descendant at least um, who I was in, I, I tried to get in touch with while I was writing the book, but he was understandably sort of reluctant to get involved. He said he didn't know anything about it. And, um, but having sent him a copy of the book, and then I visited Sydney to go to the Writers' Festival there, I did meet him, and so that was, that was wonderful. And I, um, and I, was, I was very pleased that, that he and his wife even though I hadn't even known of their existence when I started writing about it, I was very pleased that they felt that the family was written about sympathetically mm. um, and that they didn't find it, it stirred things up in an unpleasant way for them. Because even though it's such a long time ago, it's, it, it was such a, a dark family story, you know, the suspects and the victim um, coming from within the same family. It, uh, and it was a big taboo, I think, in his family um, through most of the 20th century. Although lots of members of the Kent family, Kent family emigrated to Australia, they never spoke about the murder. And um, the children only found out about it relatively recently. Like in, he found out, I think, in the 1970s mm -hmm. when he was a, a grown man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yes, please. So I was very struck by the 
the parallels that sort of kept emerging in your talk to the Moonstone and Sergeant Cuff and all that sort of thing. So, you know, and I have to sort of assume that uh, Mr. Witcher did end up growing roses. Uh, but the question I'd like to ask is, how do you manage to leave stuff out that you find in your researches? I mean, I'm thinking of a Victorian set book by another author, which I perhaps shouldn't name, where I, I came to the conclusion that the author had failed totally to leave out anything he had discovered. <laughs> um, well, I, I did, um, on the Moonstone thing, yes, I think, uh, I, and Witcher's uh, father being a gardener, it all seemed to sort of link up with the roses and the, um, and, and I think he was very, you know, squarely the model, uh, spiritually, but not, not physically for Sergeant Cuff. Um, the thing about leaving stuff out, I, I mean, it's just a matter of judgment. I, some readers might find that I le left things in that should have been left out. But I, um, it's ju you just have to follow what you as a reader would be able to, to enjoy and, and, you know, go, and go with. Um, and I did, I did cut quite a lot. The, th the stuff I, I cut most of was um, about Witcher's earlier career because uh, I, I knew a lot about that eventually, but I met, set myself the sort of discipline of only including stories of, about crimes he'd worked on or solved that illuminated this one, illuminated his investigation of this one, that is. And so I would have to leave stuff out. If I, there was a lot of kind of bank robbery and jewel, <laughs> jewel heist and stuff that... Um, it, it, because most of the the, um, the crimes he investigated were completely other from this. They were city crimes, they were scams and frauds and to do with theft and forgery. And so there were relations because it was about um, being able to see through the deception to what the truth was. But in another way, this was a, a totally different kind of thing. As well as being a middle class crime, it was an intimate domestic affair that he was investigating and there was very little precedent for that in his career. There's a lady here, please. To move on from that, how do you feel about having finished the book and then all this extra stuff comes at you? Mm. Do you ever get away? <laughs> um, well, mostly it's, uh, it, you know, I was very to write the book, I obviously was very interested in, in the case and the story and, and all the things around it. And I haven't stopped being interested. So it's still, you know, exciting even to find things out even if I can't do anything with them. And I did have a second, <laughs> I did have a chance to do for the paperback to include a, the postscript with the um, new photographs, the photographs of which are in the house. And also, I have included. I, I put some more things into the end notes that I'd found out since the book was published. So there are a few, you know, a couple of th another thousand words or so of end notes that I that I put in with the extra information. But there does come a point, you know, unless at this point, unless something really extraordinary comes to light, I've got to stop tinkering with it <laughs> and let it be. And uh, and let it be for, for someone else to take up the story in the future and get on get on with someone something else. Mm. Do you get away? Get away. <laughs> yes. What from, from the work? <laughs> from the work. Oh yes, yes. 
and I've done a lot of um, it's, but but it's been. I've done a lot of travelling in the last year. That's actually to do with the book, mm. which is a, a mixture. It's not exactly getting well. It's not getting away from the work, but it's um, it's a different sort of life to live for a year or so. Do mm. sort of moving around and um, and being a when you when you write, it's quite a solitary business, and it's quite strange to to suddenly um, be well in this kind. You know, to be sort of talking a lot instead and travelling a lot instead and being very much in the. In, the, in this century, <laughs> instead of that one. Uh, there's a lady here, please. Can you tell us a little about yourself? What sort of training did you have, apart from being a journalist in the Telegraph? Did you read history, or what? Yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't read history. I, I read English, and, um, and I and then became a journalist, and most of my work in journalism. It's been at the Telegraph and the Independent and I've been mostly an editor rather than a writer. So and most my last job was as the literary editor at the Telegraph so I commissioned book reviews and interviews with writers and so on. Um, but I did relatively little writing apart from the, the book I wrote which was nearly 10 years ago, Queen of Welke, and then this one. Um, I think I'm good quite slow at writing so if I'm going to do it I might as well do something <laughs> big you know like a book and um, so it was a big change and I did the, the first book because I uh, didn't have children or anything I did while I worked um, this one I knew that would be impossible so it was quite a big decision to leave this re re wonderful job actually and um, and to just sort of, you know, to, to leave and go and, and write this book instead. I had a contract, but uh, I didn't know, you know, how the book would do and whether, where I'd be sort of for two or three years down the line. So I feel very lucky that it's worked out. <laughs> I'd been in offices up till then, ever since I left university, basically. I have a gentleman here, and it, uh, thank you. <coughs> Uh, I'm a descendant of somebody called James Manby Gully, oh, yes. of uh, another mid-Victorian uh, unresolved murder. Yes. I just I wondered if you might think of tackling that one. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought I, that's, a, that's a very intriguing murder that I, I have read about. Um, I, Gully, I, but I, I decided that I should... Um, intriguing though I found Victorian crime, I was in danger of repeating myself if I wrote a, about another mysterious crime right now, though maybe I, in another, uh, with a different perspective, which I might do in the future. But as it happens, um, the, the book I'm researching at the moment, which is about a divorce case, has some links to hydrotherapy, which Gully was a great practitioner, so he's like a, he might be a walk on part in, <laughs> in this one. Um, I'm afraid that's it. Um, thank you all for coming, and thank you, Kate, for being so um, interesting and for writing such a wonderful book. Thank you. And also thanks. thanks to Joe for signing. Um, if you want to talk to Kate, ask her more questions, and uh, buy copies of the book if you haven't already read it. She will be in the London Review of Books signing tent. And um, if you give us a moment to get there, we'd really appreciate it. And thank you very much. Thank you.